Welcome to episode 12 of the Analytics FC podcast. I'm Sam, joined as always by Tom Warville. And this week, our guest will be Gab Marcotti, who we're going to have on in a couple minutes. But first, we wanted to do just a quick little wrap of everything that's happened in the analytics world over the past week, which has been a lot. So, Tom, you want to give just a brief overview of what we've seen go down? Yeah, sure. So, essentially, there's been sort of three uh, pretty poorly researched uh, anti-stats pieces, um, sort of noting how potentially Liverpool's downfall is due to overpaying an, an analyst who sat in a nice air-conditioned room and... Uh, you know, not making the mess. You know, not making the best uses to statistics, or just statistics don't work. Um, there's the old thing where sort of real footballing men should be at the centerpiece of you know all the main clubs, and not just these you know analysts who are you know these number wizards and all this stuff. There's just a lot of uh, sort of aggression. It's more just sort of like negativity towards what analytics and statistics can do when done correctly, really. Yeah, and I mean, if you're listening to the show called Analytics FC, you probably fall on the same side of the argument that we do. <laughs> so I don't think it's worth getting into like whether analytics are worthwhile or not. I mean, we're all here because we think they are. But I think it's worth unpacking sort of why all these think pieces came out. Well, I think we all, we all know what the genesis of them was, but what's sort of the rationale behind them? We're trying to dig a little deeper into them. And I think that's why this is a good week to have Gab Marcari on, who's a journalist sort of from the outside a little bit, who isn't an analytics journalist, but has shown a lot of interest in analytics, has talked about it, and his colleagues with a lot of people who have written, I mean, like Rory K. Smith, who are on the podcast together, have written sort of articles saying that analytics people haven't done a great job of communicating in the past. So I think it's worth digging a little deeper into this actual issue beyond just the peripheral, are analytics worthwhile or not? Absolutely. And, and therefore, you know, you've got the two... I'd say main schools who are going to use analytics in terms of you've got the journalists like Marcotti and Sean Ingle and these guys who have a, you know contact with people day to day in their writing, and then you have on the other side the stuff that the analytics is affecting, which is coaches and players and board level people at, at, at teams. Um, and one of the big sort of debates this week is sort of education and how do you effectively um, show first and foremost what analytics can do. And secondly, implement that effectively with both parties, um, with journalists feeding back to writers, sorry, feeding back to readers, essentially, you know, uh, more sort of incorporating more statistics that make sense and also uh, theories and ideas, incorporating statistics in a correct way uh, that's accessible for the sort of casual reader to pick something up and, and sort of understand it. And then equally, you're going to have the club side of things where you have teams that can actually benefit from analytics. Uh, understand its its usages, um, where it's effective, where we need to do more work in the area, and also just um, be asking for the usage of it instead of you know being told to use it as it were. Which I feel that from what we can see now is potentially what's going on at a few teams. Say like Liverpool, it seems that there's not like a very I can't remember the comment that was used by Ian Air, but it was more to do with making a hook. Uh, to sort of back up an argument versus making the argument primarily with data to start with. So two sort of main schools of thought, I feel. Yeah, and I feel like the two are linked. It isn't, I mean, journalists know what's going on in clubs better than I think we do. They have more contacts in clubs. And if they're writing like this, there's definitely people within these clubs and even within the clubs that have sort of bought in to analytics, like Liverpool clearly had, that there is a little sort of prevailing thought that real football men don't use analytics or whatever. So I think it's worthwhile saying that for for clubs to start adopting analytics across the board, 
we're going to need to see journalists um, talk about it more often and use it, as you're saying, just sort of as part of an argument or to help develop an argument that isn't just this is an analytics argument, but this is a footballing argument and I'm going to use analytics in that argument. And I think that the one of the potentially... Uh, you know, it's, it's great that we have teams like Brentford and Michelin who are, it seems to be, run a lot off the analytics and the numbers. But equally, we have less of the uh, limelight uh, shone on teams like, say, Southampton, who are a Premier League team who've done fantastic over the last few years at being smart and slowly going from League One to the Premier League and finishing a solid eighth, I think it was, last season. And like we know, if you dig slightly under the surface, you know that Southampton are using analytics, but because the media isn't sort of focusing on them, it's really easy for them to create this narrative around Liverpool tried it, look how they finished on the table. And it's a very easy argument to untangle if you are willing to sort of listen and understand. Uh, but equally, you know, a lot of people will just read that straight away and just go, ah, oh, look, analytics doesn't work, blah, 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 because they, they respect and and. Uh, sort of believe the viewpoints of these journalists. So it's it's difficult when you have these people who are wanting to write these non-stats pieces, anti-stats pieces, when you've got the use cases around you which show that they are working. Southampton's one, uh, Arsenal owns Stat DNA, which is a very, very uh, ahead of the curve uh, sort of analytics company, as it were. Yet there's only one article on that on The Guardian from like four years ago saying how they've bought Stat DNA in, and you never hear about anything to do with Arsenal and Stat DNA. Yet they probably are incorporating a lot of their work in, uh, you know, training or in recruitment, things like that. But because you don't hear about them, you just think that it's not happening. Yeah, and as you said, there is these sort of feel analytics feel good stories that we don't hear. Which I think, if we got these stories as often as we got the anti analytics stories we'd be less sensitive to these analytics, anti-analytics stories because as a lot of these guys did say is, wow, I write one thing going after one method and everyone attacks me, which, I mean, fair point. We probably shouldn't be reacting as much as we are to these articles, but it's the only time that analytics gets mentioned in the mainstream. So I think it's worthwhile to at least discuss it when it's being discussed in the mainstream like it is. And Yeah, exactly. And also the, there are like use cases this season, but they're not like being given the limelight or people don't dig into them say like for Brighton for example obviously it's only a few games gone so far this season um, but their owner is Tony Bloom who made his money like Matthew Benham uh, in sort of gambling and, and money markets um, has pumped a lot of money into the team and there was an article in one of the local Brighton newspapers uh, I think it was over summer essentially they are doing things quite smartly and People aren't labelling it analytics, it probably is, um, but they've signed some quite good players from relatively, uh, you know, teams that you wouldn't expect them to sign them from, and they're top or, you know, top few of the championship, I haven't checked the table recently, but they're doing really well, and you, you don't hear enough about that, and, you know, like you're saying, Sam, people are quick to jump to attacking analytics, and then people get very aggressive in response, because there are good use cases around, they're just not being highlighted. Okay, so let's get... Gab on and see what he thinks about all this. So I want to welcome onto the show this week, Gabriel Marcotti from ESPN FC, uh, the game podcast, and lots of other places. So can you just introduce yourself and tell us a bit about how you got into the whole analytics scene? Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm a bit of an, of an interloper when it comes to, uh, to analytics in the sense that um, I've, I've sort of been 
been fascinated in, in, in the use of, uh, of, of, of statistics and sort of, um, you know, sort of objective tools to, um, to sort of better understand what, what happens in, in the sport. And, um, I mean, and I've been into it for, for, for some time. I mean, uh, you know, going back to, uh, obviously in the way it made its way in other sports in, in the U S obviously in, in baseball, everybody knows the story. Um, and then, you know, in football, uh, I know Chris Anderson wrote his book, the, the numbers game was introduced to, um, to, to stats bomb and, and those people, um, back in, back in the day. And, I, and I've just been reading, reading more, more and more about it. I also heard some of the, shall we say, horror stories about sort of, uh, what passed for analytics early on at the turn of the millennium and how that played out in, uh, in, in, in certain instances. So. I, I've just kind of noticed this this new tool uh, or new. I mean, it's been as well like a decade now. But um, and and the way it was sort of making inroads and uh, and and sort of false starts and and, and little successes in in football and uh, and people are still tr- starting to to understand it and uh, and the way it was going. Um, I I I understand. Generally, I have enough of a, of a math background to uh, to understand um, how people uh, arrive at, at certain um, analytical conclusions. Um, what I don't have is the knowledge of of coding or uh, or the ability to write models or, or anything like that. So I couldn't actually do analytics on a large scale myself. But um, I'm a, I guess you'd say I'm a, I'm a consumer um, rather than an, an analyst. And this week, um, as you probably know, and as probably a lot of our listeners know, um, there are quite a few anti-analytics pieces and a couple of publications, um, mainly focusing on uh, Michael Edwards, who is the uh, sort of chief uh, analyst, as it were, at Liverpool, uh, under Brendan Rodgers. Um, and they were sort of attacking analytics and stats and its usage and sort of saying, you know, it's, it's bogus and we should be trusting, uh, you know, the, the, the football men of this industry. Um, do you have any sort of idea, Gab, why that was, and do you feel that it was, you know, a necessary claim to attack analytics as the downfall for Liverpool? Um, well, I mean, I think uh, probably a, a combination of, of factors, right? So, when whenever um, there's a managerial change or whenever there, there's a success, you know, we're we're all sort of trained to see, well, you know, what did they do differently? Um, you know, what what sets this apart? And, and I think it happens both ways. I mean, it happens when, when, when things go well, uh, too, you know, we always look for that little sort of magic bullet, um, that, that made this team different or, or this experience different from the one before in the case of Liverpool, I, because we've had this ongoing sort of discussion about the, the, the so-called transfer committee and, uh, and Brendan Rogers. And it was clearly, you know, quite divided. Um, on top of that, Liverpool, of course, is one of the most covered football clubs uh, in England. Um, you know, it became sort of an easier part of the narrative to, to suggest the fact that it, because a number of their signings hadn't worked out and because analytics were part of the tools that were used to bring the club, uh, bring these guys to the club, then surely analytics uh, might have had something to do with it. Um, I, I think there's two elements to say to that. Uh, one, is that sure they have this guy Michael Edwards and he's got an analytics team was part of the process, but we don't know from the outside, 
you know, to what degree that influenced uh, the decisions. Um, because simply because analytics say, yes, you should go and sign Lazar Markovich for 25 million or whatever, you know, it doesn't mean that the scout wasn't saying the exact same thing and Rogers wasn't saying the exact same thing and all the other sort of pieces in the, uh, in the transfer puzzle weren't saying the exact same thing. And the other thing is that, um, you know, as with all things, there's, there's good uh, analytics that, that, that works and that is sound in its logic. And there's other, you know, there, there's another aspect of analytics, which isn't good. Uh, those who follow, for example, baseball in the U.S. will know that, you know, for years uh, the, there were some statistics that were thought to be really, really important, like runs batted in in, in baseball. And, you know, today nobody looks at them. Um, and I'm sure there's uh, statistical measures and, and, and different analytical tools that, you know, some believe are hugely important and correlate to success and, um, and others don't. And, and I suspect that this is partly what, what's happened here. One thing you mentioned on Twitter during this whole debate was that you think there should be some sort of course or some sort of resource for journalists or coaches who want to learn a little bit more about analytics. Firstly, do you think that that's sort of a barrier right now between wanting to get that knowledge and wanting to learn a little more about analytics and actually being able to find something accessible? And secondly, what do you think that kind of course would have to entail? So I remember talking about this with some... Um with a guy named Mike Ford, who was the, uh, um, I mean, was the club secretary at Chelsea for, for many, many years, but, you know, who, uh, and, and he was sort of, I guess you could say, kind of like bridged the gap with analytics in his time at, at Bolton. I mean, it was a slightly different approach, but um, I think nonetheless a fairly sharp guy. And I, the, the idea is that, you know, to me, the real applications of analytics are, are to better understand what happened, um, what's happening on the pitch, and what might happen uh, going forward, and so on. I, I see that maybe because I can wrap my head around it better. I, I, I see that as, you know, a better application than say um, scouting purposes or, or, or things like that. Although I'm sure you can crack that one too. Um, but the problem is, is that ultimately what happens on the pitch is dictated by by the coach or, or, or the manager. And I think in football, especially in England, uh, managers and coaches tend to be, you know, the vast majority are people who left school at 16 who who maybe might have a head of, for numbers uh, in, in some ways, but, you know, don't necessarily have the tools. Um, they might have a certain wariness. Uh, they might have a tendency, those who do use analytics, to to kind of only use it to sort of confirm what their gut feeling uh, tells them. Um, I, and, and I think they would benefit from, A, understanding the, 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 the math behind it, the statistics behind it, and, and then the way they're elaborated. And I think to do that, if you're an intelligent guy and you sit there for a couple of days, you can, you can understand the basic concepts behind them. I don't think that they're so advanced that they're unknowable. And then you could, from there, once you have that, you can then create the dialogue which says, well, you know, what if we consider this question? And what if, uh, uh, you know, instead we look at that? And, and you can create the dialogue between the coach and the analyst and then create that bridge there. Uh, and I think that's a step that's necessary for analytics to be truly accepted in football and, uh, and, and it would greatly multiply its use. Because it's one thing if it's 
coming from the guy who's actually on the training pitch and actually making the decisions. And it's another thing if it's coming, you know, from upstairs, from the club owner, from the executives or, or from other sort of uh, external elements. And what about journalists? Do you think they sort of have something to learn or do you think that would be interest at least in having this sort of analytics course for journalists? Um, I, I mean, I think, yeah, I, I, I think everybody could benefit from understanding the work the analytics do, uh, the analysts do. Um, I mean, I'm assuming the really advanced, sophisticated stuff, uh, clubs probably keep for themselves, but you would benefit from understanding the, the processes be behind it, uh, the way the, uh, the way the data sets are, are, are gathered. Um, you know, I, I don't know that, you know, apart from very obvious uh, analytical tools like, say, expected goals and stuff like that, I don't know that the more sophisticated ones would ever make it into sort of mainstream media discourse simply because, um, you know, they're difficult to translate to an audience. And I just don't know that, that we're there yet. But I think a better sense of what these guys do. And I think part of the problem that there's a mistrust there, both from journalists and from football men, is, you know, to me, the more clever um, analytics types that, for the privilege of meeting are people who actually have more doubts, not less doubts, who, who raise more questions. Um, whereas some of the early introduction you know, some of these analytics types and, and, and Daniel Altman wrote, I think a good piece about this, uh, on his blog, um, uh, maybe a week ago, you know, some of these early guys came at it with certainties. I remember reading my, my good friend, Simon Cooper writes for the financial times. And I remember him at Euro 2012, uh, he wrote some piece about some of the analytics guys who were, who were behind, uh, Yogi Love and, and Germany. And, he's sort of having some kind of dialogue with them during the tournament and Germany sort of did really, really well at the group stage and in the round of 16. And, you know, he was talking about how a lot of it had to do with how well the German defenders understood their, you know, they were, their, their positioning and movement was perfect and it was down to the analytics and they'd studied the opponents, you know, and then they play in the semifinal and then, you know, Mario Balotelli, and I say this as an Italy fan, rips them a new one and, uh, and, and, and they lose two one. And Simon goes back to them and, you know, sort of questions their model and their analytics. And they said, no, our analytics was great. It's just that the players didn't do what we wanted. Well, you know, I read stuff like that. I kind of think, well, that's, that's rather off-putting. You know, you think you're the guy with, with all the answers. So, you know, I think there is a certain backlash to, to people like that, fortunately. Um, I think, for lack of a better word, good analytics people are the ones who are either humble and filled with uncertainty or the ones who are so quiet that you never hear about them and you don't know who they are because the clubs who do use their services keep them very, very close to the chest. Do you think it needs like a big success story to really get the, the sort of widespread buy-in of, of, say, the you know media? Or do you think it's just sort of a matter of time and, and like you've just been saying, a matter of literacy? I don't know that it needs um, a success story because what, what happens with sort of big success stories is that, uh, you know, and, and, and we saw this with you know, a few years ago, say Barcelona were playing a short passing game and Tiki Taka and so in possession and everybody tried to go and, and copy that. And then Barcelona go and they, you know, they play Bayern or whatnot and they get killed and they can't 
counterattack, and then there's a backlash to it. it. Says, "Oh, look, it doesn't work." No, it's all about you know being more direct and a higher tempo, and it, you know it, it's all kind of nonsense. I think you have to view it as as a tool, um, and yeah, obviously, if more managers start using analytics and are open about the fact that they use analytics without sharing exactly what they do. You know, I, I, I think it'll help and, and there'll be more opportunities and, you know, we'll have a, a, perhaps a better shared base of what works and what doesn't work. Um, but, you know, there is also the risk of, of a team using analytics and being seen as like, you know, sort of analytics FC and then they win. And then the minute they stop winning, people are, conclude that it doesn't work. I mean, we, we've we've sort of seen it very recently in this country, haven't we? Another question I wanted to talk about was sort of the reverse, because we hear a lot about, okay, well, this journalist or this coach doesn't understand analytics, but do you think that some of the opposite is happening, where people who are blogging about analytics or people who are saying, as you said, in very certain terms, this is a problem with your team, fix this, and I'm 100% right, that these people are sort of ignorant of other parts of the game, that us analysts might be sort of not, uh, not understand things that these coaches are telling us, or that critics of analytics are telling us because they understand other parts of football better than we do? Um, yeah, I, I, I definitely think so. Um, I think there's one aspect, and again, and, and, and I say this, and I don't have the data to back this up. This is an impression. This is, this is a gut feeling. Um, so make of it what you will. But I think that certain types of analytics um, or, or, or certain, you know, very broad conclusions, um, they, they tend to overrate certain, certain things, certain behaviors, uh, which people outside the game perhaps, or without knowledge of a specific uh, situation, uh, don't fully appreciate. Uh, for example, I think a lot of models uh, tend to overrate teams that create more chances and, and concede less chances. And, you know, whether you, you, you know, adjust that in terms of expected goals or, or wherever else, you know, we can generally agree that better teams tend to create more chances um, and, and concede fewer chances. However, the, I think it's a question of, of degrees. It's the same reason why, for example, you know, in very simple terms, I don't believe in goal difference is that there are certain teams who, you know, go two nil up and simply stop playing. Um, because that's kind of what they're taught to do, or it's because what their manager, uh, you know, asked them to do, or, uh, you know, they, they, they simply, or, or it's part of their, you know, safety first mentality. I find that my impression is that some analytics models tend to overrate, for example, German clubs, um, that, that simply tend to attack and keep attacking when they're three nil up. They want to score a fourth, a fifth, a sixth. Doesn't necessarily mean that you know they're better than than certain other teams who who at two nil will just slow the pace down uh, tremendously. And I think you ha- and I think you know you you can get a sense of it from watching these teams on television. I don't know to what degree that that there's an analytics tool to to, to measure this or to to adjust for this. Uh, you know maybe there is, and I'm not aware of it. Maybe you guys are. Uh, but to me, you know that's one that's one example. Um, a lot of analytics that's tied to to individuals, and this is why I, I personally am a little skeptical 
about um, using analytics for, for scouting across many different countries, many different levels, is you don't know what the player is, is being told to do. So, you know, you might note that, uh, you know, a, a player's key passes are down. You don't, you might even be able to maybe extrapolate how many key passes he's att- he's attempting if he has positional data or whatever else. But you still don't know if the manager is simply telling him, you know, don't attempt that type of pass. Uh, try something else. Play it to the, to the fullback, you know, wide and let him run with it or, or whatever else, you know. And, and I think that's where the gap is between, you know, the football person who might have more of a specific knowledge um, and, uh, and, and the analyst who's just, you know, looking at, it was taking raw data and, and elaborating it. So would you agree that sort of the best, um, I don't know whether in terms of recruitment or just in general, but the best way to sort of evaluate and use analytics would be with sort of a football mind and, uh, you know, marrying together those who are literate in stats and those who are literate in, you know, tactics and the football side of things. Yeah, I, 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 I think ideally um, the two would work together. Now, it's obviously always difficult because, you know, the worst thing would be if you get, uh, you know, if you get, say, uh, a literate football man and he just uses, uh, you know, un- unwittingly, you know, he uses analytics as, as some, you know, to sort of confirm what, he already believes or 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 indeed vice versa um but i think that's what you're moving towards either that or you have ever more sophisticated data gathering uh you know something that that sort of combines positional stuff with i movement and event data and then you know you can actually figure out what the team is trying to do just from that Possibly, and then maybe you, you remove elements of that. But no, yeah, ultimately, you know, you'd want you'd want somebody who could who could bridge that gap, or or at least people on both sides of of the the divide, so to speak, you know, trusting and, and, and working together. Speaking of sort of the intersection between analytics and tactics, your colleague Rory Smith had an article which gained a lot of traction in the analytics community recently on using more advanced language in football and how. This can sort of be an impediment to understanding and overcomplicates the game, which again, it wasn't, it didn't specifically talk about analytics in the piece or maybe throw a term or two. But do you think if you apply this theory to the analytics community, have we been good communicators in the past? Have we been able to get our ideas across? Or do you think this advanced language barrier is something that's sort of stopping us or the tactics community from getting ideas across? So on the language thing, and obviously I know I know Rory very well. Um, there is something that that you do notice, um, particularly in when talking about football in English language, which you know ultimately is done through an Anglo lens, is that it's not a very big vocabulary compared to compared to say Spanish, Italian, or, or German in the way they they speak at the game. Um, there's a lot of all-encompassing terms um you know in italy we have sort of seven or eight descriptions for example for an attacking midfielder who plays in the hole um and a lot of those are descriptions are based on the on the player's physical or or playing characteristics and a lot of them are play are based on on what you know the player is asked to do um you know in, in england you don't so generally you know if you're a 
you can say, you know, he's a number 10 type or he's an attacking midfielder or whatever. But, but then the numbers sort of end there. Um, you know, would we benefit from more precise language? Would, I, I, I think we probably, we, we probably would. Um, and, you know, would that also help define roles and help people understand and help the whole dialogue around it? You know, I, I think it probably would. I mean, I'm not sure if I'm fully answering your, your, your question here, but, um, you know, I, I think in general, when, when you can be more accurate and more specific, um, it, it does help improve communication. Um, in which case, there are evidently like parallels between people who are writing uh, heavily dense statistical pieces that don't read very well, and then you have you know the journalists like yourself who boil down pretty uh, either delicate or uh, intricate matters into something that's um, consumable by a lot of people. Do you feel there are a lot of, or at least a few, lessons that can be learnt from sort of communicating analytics through what you do with you know journalism? Well, I, I, I mean, obviously. You know the the easiest group of people to write for is an educated um, is an educated readership. Um, so you know, and I think over time, as people become more familiar uh, with with certain concepts and ideas, you know, it'll be it'll be a lot easier uh, to, to 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 sort of start communicating more more effectively. Um, but I. I think when it comes to sort of some of the more dense or sophisticated ideas, I think, and then, you know, and you mentioned sort of denser analytics pieces, you know, I think you will need, you will need a certain sort of shared base of knowledge to really appreciate and, 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 and get the best out of it. You know, it's, it's a little bit like, um, I, I mean, I have a, a, a passing knowledge for example, of how, uh, you know, the stock market works and that allows me to go and, and read, you know, certain articles about certain business articles that, you know, maybe somebody with, with less knowledge couldn't read and equally somebody with a lot more knowledge might find these articles that I find interesting, might find them boring and, and, you know, and rather, uh, rather elementary. Um, you know, that's, that's going to be, I think uh, an issue in, in any kind of journalism or any kind of uh, uh, any kind of media. Another aspect of this article that I found really interesting was talking about conveying ideas to players and sort of what we should demand of players in terms of understanding about certain concepts. And I think baseball is another interesting comparison here because we've seen some baseball players who are who love sabermetrics and know everything about sabermetrics, and then there's some. Guys will say, I don't care what my FIP or whatever is. As long as I'm getting wins, I'm happy with my pitching, and the FIP can say whatever it wants. Do you think that with players, there should be we should ask for some sort of understanding of these concepts? Maybe not in terms of, obviously not advanced doing analytics themselves or anything like that, but just the idea of, say, a concept like expected goals, something that is easy to explain. Do you think that players should be sort of responsible or asked to understand these concepts, or is that too much? I think in absolute terms, I don't think we demand enough of, of players. Um, it's funny, I was having a, a, a conversation with, uh, with somebody about why you, you make an effort to send your kids to, to really, really good schools, um, you know, growing up. And, and this person somebody who's, uh, 
been pretty high profile in education for a long time. And he said, well, you know, the really good schools kind of, they, they sort of, it's not so much what you learn. It's the fact that you learn how to learn and you learn how to understand and, and things and think critically. Um, I think football in, in some ways tends to fail young footballers um, as they grow up. They aren't, and again, I don't want to generalize about every club and every situation, but they're often, you know, asked not to take on board uh, as much information as they could. Uh, again, if, if I can reference American sports, I'm always utterly fascinated how you could have, you know, a 19-year-old uh, linebacker uh, in big-time college football who can pretty much memorize a 250-page playbook and learn every variation and every read uh, and so on. And this will be a guy who, you know, maybe doesn't have much of an education at all, can sometimes barely barely write his name, and yet he can go and have this, this incredible intellectual sophistication because he's trained to, to do that. Uh, you know, and then, you know, you've got footballers who forget their marking assignments uh, and can't, you know, mark zonally on set pieces because it confuses them. Um, and then we're professionals. You know, I, 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 I see sort of a shortfall there. Um, could we educate young footballers better and more holistically on the tactical points and, and on some of the analytical points? And you mentioned expected goals there and why it matters and, you know, and what's expected of them. Yeah, I, 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 I think we could. I think, you know, you can, you can always do more. Um, and I think this is specifically one area where I think players sometimes get an easy ride. Um, and, and it's not, and in some ways, you know, what I've been told many times by many managers is that, you know, you can't go to a 23 year old who's basically, you know, will train three times a week for two hours and then play a couple games. Uh, you know, you can't go to him and say, all right, all of a sudden we're going to do, you know, double sessions and we're going to make you watch hours of film and, 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 and stuff like that because they're not used to doing it. You, you know, you would need to start from a much younger age uh, to get people trained to do that. And then, of course, then you run into another issue, which is, you know, do we want to go and train 14, 15 year olds to become professional footballers when the vast majority of them, won't, you know, won't become professional footballers and maybe just play football for, for fun. And obviously that's a much bigger and broader question. Bringing it back to the sort of um, use of analytics and mainstream journalism, do you think there's like a, an attainable level in the future where we're going to be seeing, you know, expected goals in, in your pieces in the times and things like that? Or do you think that it's going to be a lot slower and it's going to be more of uh, the sort of basic per 90 stuff we're seeing now? Or do you think there's going to be like a quick progression, you know, in the next couple of years? Um, well, I, I, I mean, we're already seeing it from, you know, I think in mainstream media, I think because they, they pay a lot of money to Opta, um, to go and get numbers, they feel the need to use them. Now, you guys being analytics guys, you probably have like a right giggle when, you know, you flick on Sky Sports News or, or I'll give you the most basic example, which does my head in, right? Sky Sports News, they'll, you know, they'll be like, like, oh, you know, like, uh, I don't know, Dick Advocat gets sacked and, you know, the, these are the candidates to replace him. And they'll, they'll, put, they'll put, like, their win percentages up. <laughs> now, you tell me how that is a relevant metric. I mean, I would have thought the only relevant metric, really, 
I mean, obviously, it's, and that's not even that relevant because then you need to adjust for, for, for squad strength and whatever else. But surely managers get relegated or, or stay up based on points per game, not based on win percentage, right? But win percentage is really easy to understand. I guess points per game confuses some people. So, you know, we, we, we have these strange comparisons or, uh, you know, you see this in Champions League game where, you know, you'll get, you know, the, the, the distances that, that, that players ran in the course of the 90 minutes. And and if you notice that they're always sort of very marginal differences. I think there was a the game a couple of years ago where, where Messi, I think, ran something like, you know, six kilometers and everybody else ran at least 10. So, yes, you could notice in that game something was wrong with Messi. But most of the time when it's, you know, 10 kilometers and 720 meters or 10 kilometers and 900 meters without any kind of context, it's totally, totally relevant. You know, as are, I think, passing percentages for central midfielders. I mean, what, what does that mean in and of itself? I think it's, it's kind of pointless. Uh, so, you know, I think we're at the, still at the stage where we maybe are integrating things like that. Not quite sure um, where it, uh, what it means. Um, actually, I want to ask you guys just to educate myself. But in in Italy, where we're definitely behind on analytics, one uh, metric that pops up all the time in, uh, in in Gazette dello Sport, and I guess they must have a deal with their um, with their sort of statistical provider, is what they call the 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 team's center of gravity. Um, which is basically, I, I guess it's like an extrapolation of where their defensive line is or, or where the average sort of distance maybe between the, 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 the striker and the, the last defender is. And you can figure out from that whether the team set up on a low block, medium block, or high block. I don't normally see that in English language media. I, I can see how it would broadly tell you whether a team spent more time defending or attacking. Um, I, I don't know how worthwhile it is, but it does kind of give you a picture. Is that something you guys have come across? But I don't think what you're talking about is pointless. That seems, that's, I think that's an interesting idea, looking at a team's sort of center of gravity just as a descriptive statistic, not necessarily something that's going to say, this team is really good, this team's really bad. I mean, obviously a team like Atletico would have a much more, would have a center of gravity that's much closer to their own goal than a team like Real Madrid, but doesn't mean that, Atletico's any worse than Real Madrid, but I think it's an interesting descriptive stat. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I think it's one of those, I mean, you know, it's like, it's like possession, right? I mean, sterile possession is sterile possession, but it tells you, it can tell you something about how the team played, and, and, and as you said, like, if Atletico Madrid normally, when they're playing at home against teams of a certain standard, normally have a certain setting of gravity, and in some game it's it's very different, then you might ask the question, well, why was it different in this game? You know, was it a result of an early goal? Was it a tactical change? Was it different personnel? You know, I think these, these are the ways that we can make it useful. But again, though, I think it's on a granular way that I don't know to what degree it's ever going to breach you know, real mainstream media. Yeah, and on that point, I think there also is the reverse that happens. Or it's been interesting to hear what you think about this, the idea that when we hear these terrible stats that are used to back up an opinion. I mean, I saw once that David De Gea was a better keeper than Courtois because he made more saves in the Premier League last year. And the first three comments were, stats are terrible. Obviously, you can't tell that De Gea is better than Courtois from this. And I sort of think, well, I mean, he's right. You can't tell that Courtois is better is better or worse than De Gea from the stat. But do you think that then turns people off stats saying, okay, all stats are BS now and I'm just going to ignore this part of the game because they've seen it used incorrectly? 
And you think that yeah. sort of hurts analytics? Oh, I, 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 I think it does in terms of the perception of the person on the street. I would hope that the person at a football club, you know, whose job is to decide to, you know, how to use analytics and whether to use analytics would, you know, would any intelligent person would see that's that that's a ridiculous use of analytics. Um, and while maybe in some ways that might have been excusable some years ago, you know, there's a there's a wonderful story which may well be an apocryphal story, but he's um, still still worth telling, which is that. Uh, when when Sir Alex Ferguson, you know, back in the early days of analytics, he he had yapped down at Manchester Manchester United. He felt he had the impression that that, that Stam wasn't looking quite as sharp or as or as bright uh, as as he did before, as dominant. And I guess they had some sort of fledgling uh, statistical service there at the time. He went and he looked for for confirmation, and the guy pointed out that, ooh, actually, boss, you know, you're right, because, you know, the number of tackles he makes per game, you know, they, they've fallen by 50%. He made some two and a half last year, and now he's making a little over one tackle a game. Um, and again, and I need to stress, the story may well be apocryphal. It's just a story that does the round. Um, and so based on that, he decides, aha, you know, Stam is, is, is finished. Um, I, I saw right you know, let's go and uh, uh, let's go and sell him, which of course they did. And then Stam went on to play for a number of years at a very high level for Lazio and, and Milan, and uh, you know, and, and did exceptionally well. Um, and then shortly after the sale, um, Sir Alex looked into it and sort of found out that you know, throughout his career, when Paolo Maldini played centre back, he averaged you know just under half a tackle a game, and the reason being that. He was a tremendous defender, and he relied on positioning, and he hardly ever left himself in a, in a situation where, where you know, he had to make a tackle. Um, and equally, he also noted that, you know, yes, Stan was making fewer tackles, but actually United as a team were, were defending better. Um, so obviously that's an obvious use, and again, the story may well be apocryphal, um, of, of stats being used incorrectly, out of context. I think worst of all, you know, a situation where they don't start with a hypothesis, but they're, they're, they kind of seek out stats to support a preconceived uh, notion. Um, you know, that's, that's simply bad, unobjective, um, unscientific use of, of numbers. Uh, and, you know, you would hope that intelligent people in the game have learned their lesson from that. Uh, th there is another point. I mean, you mentioned... De Gea there, there is another, and you guys may be across the story as well, there's another story doing, um, doing the rounds involving, involving Simon Mignolet. Um, and here, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily blame them as much, but the story was that Mignolet's final year at, at Sunderland, uh, they looked at, they sort of, they used uh, shot locations and expected goals from those locations, and they used that to adjust on, on save percentages over the course of a season, and they found that Mignolet's numbers were, uh, after David De Gea's, the best in the Premier League. Um, what they didn't look at was the idea, which I'm sure you guys are very familiar with, and your audience probably is as well, the idea of repeatability. In other words, that they... The, they they found when, when they did a much much broader stu study 
that actually, you know, these kind of numbers simply do not repeat over time. Uh, and then they, they fluctuate quite wildly, whether it's because the sample size isn't that big or, or whatever else. And so, you know, while it's a, it's a neat idea to look at save percentage adjusted for, um, you know, a shot location and expected goals from, from shooting from different areas, it's not necessarily useful, or at least it wasn't necessarily useful in, in the way in the way that they did at the time. I think, going back to what we said earlier about sort of combining uh, the number side of things and the sort of coaching football knowledge side of things, um, there are a couple of comments made about uh, Petr Cech at the start of the season, essentially that um, obviously he conceded a couple of goals against West Ham and it was a bit of a bumpy start to the season. That, you know, potentially, although his save percentage over, I think, five years is one of the highest, if not the highest in the league, there's you've got to sort of combine that with the fact that he's been playing in front of a defence which is conceding potentially, you know, different shots to those that Arsenal concede and he's sort of used to making or, you know, has been making more comfortable saves for, you know, over a few seasons. Whereas with Arsenal, it's a new defence in front of him that he's not familiar with. There are, you know, shots that are coming in that he's not fully expecting a lot of the time. Same with, you know, uh, set pieces. He's not fully used to... um, defending set pieces with Arsenal where he is with Chelsea where he knows, you know, everyone knows their job, he's been there for years, he knows what's happening. So I think that's another potential example where you've got to sort of marry these two things together and you might get more of an insight alongside repeatability like with the uh, the Minilet example. Well, uh, I'll give you another example with, with, with Czech, one that takes it, I, I think, to a whole new level. I mean, so in my mind, there's no question, and here we all agree, Peter Czech was, you know, has been one of the best goalkeepers in the world for 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 five years, ten years, whatever it is. Um, but if you talk to actual goalkeeping coaches, um, they'll tell you that some of what Czech does is actually quite unorthodox, or it's it's a certain school of thought. Um, and the, the reason being that he doesn't he he worries. I'm going to really dumb this down. It's obviously much more complex, but. And I'm not a goalkeeping coach or goalkeeping expert. This is just what I was told by, by several people. And, um, and, and it's also come through from, from Czech and, and Christoph Lollishan, uh, his, his goalkeeping coach at Chelsea as well, which is that they, you know, when, when the goalkeeper is between the sticks, he's constantly kind of in his mind, he's const- his mind is unwittingly deciding, do I focus on positioning myself for the shot based on, on where the ball is right now um or should i focus all my attention on reacting to the shot when it comes off um and and obviously these are things these are processes that that go on in your mind and in in, in a split second uh it's not something conscious but it's something generally that's learned in, in training and one of the one of the issues with with check and and one of his great strengths isn't as much the the positioning it's it's the reaction and it's it's the sort of the ability to sort of predict because he he, he focuses intently on where the ball is and the body uh, and, and sort of the body language of the striker when the striker is going to shoot he gets some sort of whether you call it instinct or reaction time or whatever which allows him to anticipate the shot whereas a different goalkeeper would actually focus on adjusting his body weight a little bit on adjusting his positioning that little bit more uh, so that he is better positioned when the shot comes in, as opposed to you know there's that sort of natural trade-off. Um, again, if I were a goalkeeping coach, 
and I, and I were an analytics guy at a club where you could do this and you had positional data and maybe you combine it with video data, I would look at this and I would take this element, take the other, other elements that you talked about with uh, the, 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 you know, the fact that he had a settled Chelsea defense that didn't give up shots in good locations and whatever else. And I would, you know, find a way to combine all this in an intelligent way um, to assess Peter check and assess how much I want to pay Peter check and assess, you know, if it's ever a good idea to drop him for David Espita, um, maybe work with the goalkeeping coach to w wonder whether he needs to adjust certain things because he's playing behind different defenders now and whatever else that to me is a really useful, intelligent, theoretical application of analytics. Then, you know, then, then obviously the next step is getting all these strands to work together and then seeing if it works. Um, but to me, like the, the, the future of analytics isn't, is, or what are the potential future applications of analytics is in doing stuff like that. I'm very excited to watch Arsenal now this weekend with all this in mind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So these are sort of the, we've talked a bit about the stats we don't like. I'm curious from a journalism perspective, are there stats you think that are really useful that you found helps either in understanding when you're writing or that you actually enjoy like that you actually put into your articles. Is there some ideas and analytics that have really caught on with you? I mean, I, okay. I, I, I don't want to call it analytics because you don't understand. I, my computer skills are so bad that I, I, I can't even make a macro on an Excel spreadsheet. I, I just kind of input the numbers manually and I sit there with a calculator. Um, so, I don't assess any. I don't put any any, any real value in that. Um, I I am a fan of of expected goals. I, I think they are significant. I know that people's models vary. Um, I don't know how to figure out expected goals myself. I, I don't have whatever the was it the the, the F twenty whatever. The, you know, I don't have access to that. I don't know how to use it. I I don't know how to, to, to scrape data from it. I just look at Opta and look at, you know, have them tell me what the expected goals are. I'm sure there's people with much more sophisticated models or I'll look at, you know, what um, Michael Hack, I mean, Michael Cayley, um, what he posts on Twitter and stuff like that. That's kind of my starting point. Um, you know, beyond that, I, I, I think that there is one thing, and, and again, this is sort of, combining the empirical stroke uh, anecdotal with with numbers which is that i i am generally interested in in streaks um and and i know that you know that there's been famous papers about sort of momentum and and, and things like that and whether there's such a thing for example as the hot hand in basketball or in flipping a coin and, and whatever else but there are enough people who've worked in football, who've told me that, you know, when a team is on a roll, um, and the roll doesn't necessarily mean like, you know, an unbeaten streak or, um, or, 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 or for example, uh, you know, four wins in a row. Um, a lot, a lot of things become, become easier. Um, it, it becomes easier to, to get buy-in from the players. Uh, the training sessions go smoother. There, there, there's less pressure and so on. And sort of good things tend to follow on from good things. Um, so that, that is something I, I, I pay attention to is, 
is, is streaks. Um, and I'd love to see somebody kind of, you know, somebody with proper analytics take a look at that. That is something I'd, I'd be interested in, in reading about. The other thing, which is very obvious to me, which I think we as a media do a really, really big, bad job at, at talking about, also because clubs don't like talking about it. Um, and again, I don't know to what degree we have the analytical tools to uh, to really look at this. Is you know, if you think about um, you know sprinters or, or, or boxers or other types of athletes. They generally have natural cycles in, 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 in their preparation. Now, they'll have peaks and troughs over the course of a season. Um, you know, the weeks where, despite being fully fit, you know, they may be less powerful, less explosive. If they sprint 20 times a game, you know, maybe they don't actually, you know, reach their, their, their peak combination of power and speed as often as they would other weeks. And that's simply a physical preparation thing, or it's simply sort of a natural fact that. You can only do things so many times and then your body needs to recuperate or whatever. Um, these are things that I think you can you can sometimes notice with, with an eye test. If you're watching a game, if you look at the way uh, players move or, or react when the ball's out of play, um, I'd love for people to figure out a proper way of, of, of analyzing this. And I wish we talked about it more. Um, because it's something that I know a lot of coaches are very mindful of. And a lot of times when, when they rotate or when, you know, you see a guy who's been in the starting lineup for, for a while kind of disappear from it. Uh, you remember last year, it was one, one stretch of like a month and a half when under Herrera didn't start a game for, for Manchester United. And everybody was wondering like, who does he not like Herrera anymore? He seemed to always come off the bench or whatever, you know, I, I think it was actually a physical thing. He was fully fit physically, but for whatever reason, they felt that maybe his training workloads had to be a little different or whatever. You know, that kind of sort of more granular stuff um, really, really fascinates me. There's also the, the whole side of thing, which you likely touch on there, is probably psychology as well. Um, you know, the, the, the people can't really explain Fernando Torres at Chelsea. Maybe it was the style of play didn't suit him and he was a lot better at... Uh, running on through balls and things like that but at Chelsea he was a completely different player and I hate to go back to the whole thing of confidence in, in sort of football because a lot of people don't believe in confidence um, but you know is there a psychological thing there um, and equally that leads on to sort of I feel the next frontier in analytics is going to be something to do with uh, brain data because uh, well, there was a piece in I think it was Grantland uh, a couple of months back about a company in the States a uh, startup in the States is doing sort of uh, psychological testing on baseball players, um, essentially looking at reaction times and um, pitch recognition. And this is something that where they'll sort of have a pitch on a screen and they'll be told that it's going to be a curveball, and if it is a curveball, press one button, and if it's not, press another, enough to, another button. Um, and you can sort of measure when players can identify and at what point they identify whether a pitch is the one that they've been told or whether it's a, a different one. And if you, sort of in football, there was an, uh, it was mentioned last week, I can't remember where I heard or read it, but essentially that um, players like Sergio Aguero for his five goals at Newcastle, um, his sort of skill set is one where a lot of the time his subconscious acts quicker than he can think. 
And before he can actually move in front of the defender and put the ball in the back of the net, he's already done it. And, you know, he, he can't actually remember that moment happening. And there's a whole sort of, you know, is there, like you're saying with workload and things like that, is there sort of something that you can train in a player in their subconscious to make them, you know, match fit when they don't actually think they are match fit or something like that? I mean, it's a really, uh, you know, growing small area, but it's something that if we can quantify that and use it effectively, it's going to be a really cool thing to apply to baseball, football, you know, any, any sports. Oh, uh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, we're scratching the surface there. Um, and I think, you know, related to that, um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you another example, um, uh, which uh, is, is another area which I think we don't yet fully understand. And, and there was a really good article in the New York Times magazine, it must be like maybe 10 years ago now, where, where somebody went and um, and, and they, they sort of looked at, um, I mean, they looked sort of at excellence in, in certain sports, um, but they, they, there's a famous um, tennis academy on the outskirts of Moscow, which produced some like sort of absurdly disproportionate number of um, of top uh, male and female tennis players. And he looked at it, and obviously, you know, you get the whole thing about sort of excellence breeds excellence, and then they spend hours training, and you know, they select all the little boys and little girls. But he noticed that essentially, you know, they, they, they put, you know, little girls with a racket and an imaginary tennis ball and they're just, you know, sort of spending hours just swinging a racket at nothing and perfecting their form. And he said that there was, um, and, and, and the argument that they made is that there's a substance called myelin, which, um, helps the, um, I guess it helps the neurons fire, uh, more, more efficiently. And this is something that you can actually build up over time uh, with with repetition, and it has to do with with the way we learn, um, and that you know there are certain triggers that allow you to build it up more efficiently, and whether unwittingly or not, these people in in, in Moscow had sort of figured out the the most effective ways of building up this myelin um, through, through doing these repetitive exercises. You know that then takes you onto um, on, onto a whole other level. Um, I know of of one Premier League footballer who um, you know he sort of is a party trick. He at the end of, of training sessions, he you know if you've ever seen the old crossbar challenge on Soccer AM or whatever, he, he'd stand sort of five year five yards outside the, um, the the penalty box, and you know he could hit the crossbar. Uh, he hit the crossbar. He, he wouldn't basically wouldn't leave the training pitch until he hit the crossbar sort of 20 times out of 20 and not chipping it either. He would just blast it. So my question to him is somebody who, you know, when I played football, I could never do that would be, well, hang on a minute. If I'm, if you can do that, if you can put the ball right there. You can put the ball sort of, you know, three inches lower, just under the crossbar. Um, why not have something, you know, some sort of move in a game where you're, you know, we all pretend we're going one way and we leave you at the edge of the box and we just pass it back to you and you just bury it, you know, <laughs> every other time you should score. And, and he said, you know, it's, it's a really good question. He says, I can't do it in a game. In fact, I think I've scored once from outside the box in my entire career, um, you know, in, in that setting. And I'd love to have, again, uh, you know, some clever people look at the mechanics of that. You know, what is it? Is it the fact that 
obviously being planted at a standstill is, is very different uh, than um, than you know than getting it sort of getting the ball dynamically in the course of a game. Um, does that come into it? Um, you know, there, 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 there's you know when when you really get to thinking of it or, or thinking of these things, you know, there, there's so many levels uh, that you can reach. I mean, I look. I remember Andy. You guys are probably too young for this, but there was a footballer named Andy Bremer who who was a World Cup winner with Germany. He was an outstanding left back for for Inter Milan, um, and he was perfectly two footed. He, he famously scored a free kick with his left, and then scored another free kick with his right in the same game. And he spoke about this very, very openly about how you know he was he's a very good athlete, but he wasn't a particularly skillful player. But you know anybody can deliver a cross. He could deliver it with both feet, which meant that opposing players, you know, they, they really couldn't defend him because they couldn't play him onto his weaker feet. So he'd get the ball in the left wing and, you know, he'd go one way or, or go the other way and, and he'd deliver the cross. And he said that that was simply because, you know, his dad kind of forced him to play on his weaker foot, you know, sort of they'd spend an hour a day sort of banging the ball with his bad, with his bad foot off the wall in the back garden. And he carried that with him. Now, you look at a number of professional footballers who are one-footed and are so uncomfortable in their bad foot, and you think, like, what the hell? You know, <laughs> why can't we go and make them, you know, learn how to do this? Right? Um, I, just, there's so many examples. I remember, I remember an England game where they were complaining that the ball kept going over to the left wing. I mean, this is like ten years ago when Scholes was playing, and basically every single England player was essentially right-footed except for like the left back and so the ball always they, they always ended up passing the ball to their left as right-footed people are, are want to do uh with the exception of skulls he seemed to be the only because skulls was you know relatively two-footed you know unless the ball got to Scholesy, then england became really really predictable and you know how could you figure that out how do you stop that well you know you can you can train for it right as we understand the game better we could we ought to be able to address these things Okay, so just to finish up, we have a few quick questions from Twitter. First off, uh, what are your thoughts on Klopp as an appointment at Liverpool? Um, I think what, what, what I like about Klopp is he's one of those managers who I think questioned himself and you know, doesn't stick with, with what works, um, but sort of for when it doesn't work as well, you know, he, looks, he looks for renewal. Um, people... You know, everybody remembers him losing Lewandowski and and Goetze, but you know he lost guys who were important for him, like like Kagawa or even Lucas Barrios uh, after his first season. Um, to me, that's that is a real skill for a manager. Now, I think his last transition in the final year, and it was obviously complicated by by injuries and the fact that you know certain players really had a massive drop in performance. Um, I think was he tried to evolve sort of beyond the gig and pressing and, and the high um, energy style of play because he realized that, you know, it left him vulnerable against bad teams. And I'm told he actually came to the conclusion, we don't need to play that way when we play against teams who are worse than we are. You know, we can we can save it for, for the really big teams. I don't think he successfully managed that transition, and that was part of the reason why Dortmund didn't do well. The The challenge for him is Liverpool is going to be, I think, People are expecting the gig and pressing and, and this, this sort of breakneck speed stuff. He's going to have to introduce, I think, another dimension as well, uh, especially playing in the Premier League. And how well he does that will help determine his success. 
Another question we got is if you could take an analytics deep dive onto any team, any team, any historical team from one season, what team would you choose to learn more about? Oh, there's no question. It would be, um, it would be Saki's AC Milan. And I would, what I would be most fascinated in is the absolute, for people who, people who don't remember this, this was a team that obviously on paper was fantastic. They, they ripped opposing teams to shreds, but they couldn't do it regularly. Um, it still amazes people that, and admittedly there was a lot of competition in Serie A at the time, but Arrigo Osaki's Milan only won one Serie A title. Um, and I'd love to know why that happened and why things unfolded that way. We have tons of anecdotal um, uh, evidence, but I'd love some analytical evidence. And we'll choose one last one from Twitter, which is, what's your favorite theory on what's going on at Chelsea this year? Oh, wow. Um, I, 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 no, I think, you know, sometimes it's the most boring theories. Um, so maybe it's not my favorite theory, but it's the one which I think is probably accurate. I think there's been, um, I think primarily, I think there's, there's, there's a major physical issue um, which first manifested itself in February and hasn't gone away. Perhaps wasn't addressed over the summer uh, the way it should. Um, I also think that he has maybe, and I also think he simply his message hasn't reached certain players. Um, and and I think you know that's at the basis of 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 what's going on. I also think he's. He's not used to, you know, dealing with crises. Um, and again, if you look back historically, and I go back to, I, I go back to something as simple as, you know, there's a website called Soccer Association, which tells you the progression, wins and losses. Um, you know, we, we often depict, you know, Mourinho as somebody who's only ever known success. Well, he's had to deal with crises in the past. And what's interesting is you would, if you go back and you look, he often did not bounce back from them straight away. Um, when Mourinho's teams hit rough patches in the past, the rough patches tended to last a little bit. Now, in the grand scheme of things, you know, when times are good, they were really good for so long, which is why he ended up winning so much. But I think back to the year he won the treble, actually, when they had like a, a I don't know, it was like an 11 point lead in Serie A uh, late in the season, and they actually fell behind Roma at one point. Um, and I also think to what happened at Real Madrid in his third season, and you know, to me, those are hints that when when things, you know, when when you get the first signs of trouble, he doesn't always react in such a way as to snuff the trouble out. Uh, it sometimes takes him a while to figure uh, to figure out what's wrong and to address it. Um, and this is what's happening. This is what's happening now. Cool. Um, anything else you'd like to cover or, or plug? Um, no, I mean, I, I think just uh, um, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by this world. <laughs> uh, I think we could all use more education. Um, you guys talked about bad, bad use of stats in mainstream media. Um, one of my favorites was um, when Lucas Podolsky left Inter, 
there was a piece in a newspaper, and, and I won't name it or name the writer, but it was obviously fed by the club, where they talked about how, you know, it was one of those pieces which would probably, you know, which tends to anger non-analytics people because it kind of came out and said, like, you know, one of the most important predictors of success is the number of high-intensity sprints uh, a player does during the game. And, you know, immediately when I read that, I just kind of want to, like, smash my, my laptop because I said, well, Jesus, you know, surely it depends on the style of the team and whatever else. But anyway, whatever, that might be true for Arsenal. And the, then the guy lists sort of how you know, Podolsky's, the number of high-intensity sprints that Podolsky made over the course of a game um, had declined compared to a couple years ago and was far behind sort of all these other, um, all these other Arsenal players. Um, and I looked at it and I said, well, gee, you know, it is, it is far behind. But then I kind of asked myself, like, how many games has Podolsky actually started? And I look back, and what this guy had done is he didn't look at Podolsky's high-intensity sprints for 90 minutes. He just looked at Podolsky's high-intensity sprints. Well, obviously, if you're only playing like 9 minutes here or 12 minutes there, uh, you will presumably make fewer high-intensity sprints when he plays 90 minutes. You know? <laughs> and, you know, and I think it's stuff like this, which, you know, <laughs> a little bit like the, uh, the, the De Gea save statistic, just just, you know, makes you want to bang your head against the wall, you know, how you miss such sort of obvious, obvious things. Now, all that said, I, I don't think Podolsky uh, is a particularly impressive footballer, and whatever the reason, whether it was the high-intensity sprints or not, I think, uh, you know, Wenger's quite happy that he's gone. All right, lads, well, thanks so much. Um, I'm going to go do the school run now, so, uh, so I'm going to leave you guys. Cool. And... Uh, yeah, keep up the good work. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Cheers, guys. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. And thanks to Gab for coming on with us and sort of chatting about the few pieces this week among uh, lots of other interesting stuff. I'm, I'm pretty sure you'll agree. Um, just a couple of plugs before we go. The first is for uh, the OptiPro forum. Uh, submissions uh, deadline is Sunday. That's the 18th of October, just coming up in a couple of days' time. Uh, a quick plug again for our friends at Interpress. Um, it's started by our friend Bobby Gardner uh, and essentially a sort of a platform for young, inspiring, aspiring writers uh, to sort of get noticed, get a bit of exposure, um, have the chance to work with an editor and have some work uh, you know, published or fed back about. Um, so if you're looking to sort of start in the world of uh, football writing and you, you, know, you have a lot of questions or you don't really have anywhere to sort of get an audience quickly, um, Interpress is a really good sort of site to get started on. So you can find them on Twitter at, at Interpress uh, and also at interpress.co.uk as well. Oh, and we have a Twitter account now. So follow us on Twitter at analytics underscore FC. And if you know the guy who has analytics FC without the underscore who hasn't tweeted in six years... Let them know that we'd like it. <laughs> awesome. This was good fun. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's it for today. Um, there'll be another podcast on Friday with Michael Cox, uh, another great guest. I'm sure you'll uh, agree. Um, cool. Thanks, Sam. Cool. Thanks. Bye.